Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The return of inflation. What should investors, savers, and shoppers be prepared for? Is this century the Asian century for investors? Our adventurous investor David Stevenson is tempted to head further east. And the lifetime ISA, we meet the Conservative MP who wishes next year's savings plan for the under-40s would die a quiet death. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you the week's money news in downloadable form. Firstly, inflation came back with a bang this week, with official statistics showing a headline rate of 1% in September, the highest level for nearly two years, and one which economists expect to rise as the full effect of the plunging pound is factored in. But what does it mean for investors, savers, wage earners, and also shoppers? I'm joined in the FT studio by Alan Clark, economist at Scotiabank, who's been following developments closely. Welcome, Alan. Morning. So what's causing inflation to rise, and what could push it higher still? Right now, it's a combination of two things. Mainly, it's petrol prices, which are rising right now, but they also fell this time a year ago. So you get a double whammy in terms of the math of the inflation rate. And between now and next February, that will continue and will probably add a further half a percentage point to inflation. The second thing is we're starting to see the effects of the weak pound pushing up on imported goods. Now, to be clear, this isn't really the fall in the pound since the Brexit vote. Actually, the pound had fallen a long way even before that. Mm. So it takes a long while to feed through, and it's only just starting to kick in, even though the pound started to fall last November. And we saw that in clothes prices tentatively. And it may even be that the Brexit effect, tourists coming to the UK, contributed to the higher restaurant and hotel prices in the latest data. And this is the first of many months where we'll see more and more of those effects. How high do you think it could go? So from today's 1% year-over-year rate, I think we'll get to about 3% a year from now, where it will probably top out and start to come down. That is, unless the pound continues to fall. Once the pound stops falling, eventually that upward impetus will go away. So it should be a hump-shaped profile, but for now I think the peak will be 3%. Now, savers listening to the podcast may have increased hopes that rising inflation means interest rates could also rise. Is that something that you're factoring in? Yes and no. It depends which interest rates you look at. In terms of plain vanilla interest rates at your bank or in plain vanilla government bonds, probably not. The Bank of England has been well versed in looking through temporary overshoots and undershoots in inflation. The Bank of England governor and one of his fellow colleagues on the Monetary Policy Committee have both said we are prepared to look through this latest temporary spike in inflation. Having said that, there's more than one way to invest in safe assets 
and one asset that could perform quite well if inflation rises, inflation-linked gilts. Now, those in the past, you could invest through national savings in a particularly tax-efficient way. And there are other investment vehicles through fund managers where you can invest in inflation-linked gilts. Those are 100% protected from inflation. So it depends. You do have to think outside the box a little bit on this one. And thinking of the bigger picture, how do you anticipate the return of inflation will affect the UK economy? Next year, inflation is the enemy. We have had really nice, healthy economic growth this year and last year, and it's been organic, self-sustaining. And what I mean by that is the consumer has been the engine, and in turn, consumer spending has been driven by an increase in household disposable income. We've enjoyed a 2% increase in employment growth per year, coupled with about 2% wage inflation. And when you then subtract inflation from that, which erodes your purchasing power, and inflation was zero, you had 4% more money on average per year Happy to spend. Days. It, it was great, really, really good. Next year, if we leave employment and wage growth to one side, if inflation's gone from zero to three, you've just lost three of your percentage points of real income growth, and that's going to be a big, big drag on overall economic growth. Now, that's the glass half empty story, and that's the one that is in most people's forecasts. But to be fair, the glass half full story since Brexit has really won the argument on a lot of the economic data releases. So let's look at that argument. What about wages? Now, wages have been okay at 2%, but it's been puzzling they've not been higher given a really low level of the unemployment rate. And business surveys from the likes of the CIPD have said, well, the main reason employers have given for not raising wages by even more is that they simply haven't had to, because if inflation's zero to one, mm. they only have to increase wages by two and a bit, and you've made your workers better off in real terms. That argument won't hold water a year from now when inflation's three. At that point, you may get upward drift in wages. It may happen this coming year, but I doubt it. If employers are forward-looking and they expect inflation to rise, they may front-load things and raise wages. But I don't think that's as likely. More likely, we will feel this squeeze in 2017, and 2018 will be the year of the pay rise, where some of the squeeze on the consumers goes away. Well, bring on 2018, the year of the pay rise, I say. That was Alan Clark, economist at Scotiabank. And you can read FT Money's cover feature this week, which is all about the return of inflation and what investors, savers and shoppers should be doing. You can read in the FT Weekend newspaper this weekend, available in all good news agents, or online, ft.com slash money. Still to come on The Money Show, should the lifetime ISA be snuffed out? But before that, let's head to Asia, where the plunging pound has provided some benefits for sterling base investors. Aside from the short-term currency advantages, what are the long-term benefits of investing there? I'm joined by FT's adventurous investor, David Stevenson, who's written about the topic in his FT Money column this week. David, welcome back to The Money Show. Hello, Claire. So you argue in your column this week that this century could be the Asian century, even for investors. Tell us why. Well, I think probably the single best argument to be made by the FT's own Gideon Racken and his excellent book, Easternisation. But he's merely sort of articulating a wider argument, which is that there's a series of structural factors here. Massively growing consumer market, not just China. We're not talking just China here. That's an important thing to say. We're talking Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines. Even um, Japan. Even Japan, exactly. How, it depends how you define Asia-Pac, excluding or including Japan. 
So it's massively growing consumer market. But more importantly, I think an inexorable rise of political influence. It, there's a debate about whether or not China will be the world's largest economy at some point. You know, is it now? Is it in five years' time? Is it 10 years' time? I don't think anyone's particularly doubting it's going to happen in the next 20 years. And with that comes a whole series of political realignments that are going on. And those political realignments will have a necessary economic, macroeconomic effect, just as Asia becomes more important. Now, one of the issues, I think, for investors is, is that when we look at investing in a kind of geographical box-like way, mm. we say, where do you invest in? Do you invest in the UK? Do you invest in the US? We don't tend to say, do you invest in value stocks? You invest by geography, not by style, for instance. So if you invest by geography, if you invest in America, it's straightforward. You invest in the US markets. If you invest in Asia, it's a really much more difficult thing. What do I mean by Asia? Do I invest in Japan? Do I invest in China? Do I invest in Asia Pacific, excluding Japan, which is another definition? Or do I invest in the kind of Southeast Asian nations, the Malaysias and the Indonesia? And Indonesia has done very well as a stock market. And that's a really tricky thing because actually investors have to make a decision about what they want to do. Do they want to include Japan if they buy a fund, for instance? Do they want to buy a fund that invests in Japan as well as the rest of Asia or excludes Japan? And so the problem then becomes, what do you do when you have to obviously reflect your portfolio's exposure to the growing prominence, political and economic of Asia? And how do you navigate around it? And there are sort of decisions that you can't duck. You do have to work out, are you mainly going to be focused on China or not? Are you going to exclude Japan or not? Are you even going to exclude Australia? That's not another odd one. You know, some people put Australia within the Asia-Pac region. Do you include them or not? These are active decisions and you sort of need to work out what you're going to do. And what about the bear case for Asia? Hmm. I mean, lots of listeners will be thinking, <laughs> hmm, Anthony Bolton. Yes, yes. You know. <laughs> yes, well, there's a, look, there's a bear case for pretty much all markets at the moment. At the moment. I could think of a very strong bear case for US markets at the moment. But yeah, there's a strong bear case for Asia. And it flows out of the positive bullish case, actually, which is as Asia becomes more politically influential in multilateral bodies, for instance, we're likely to see a rise of geopolitical risk. I mean, we've already seen that. South China Sea. I don't need to rehearse any of the arguments, what's going on there with the nine dash line and what China's kind of posturing around there. So I think probably if I were to put the single biggest risk at the moment, which is the, I suppose it's the known unknown, not the unknown unknown, is geopolitical risk. We know there's likely to be a problem. There's a damn good chance there's going to be a war at some point somewhere between somebody. It's a cheery thought. Yes, yeah, a cheery thought. But I mean, you know, you don't go around saber rattling in the way you do without expecting to have to deploy at some point. And so we know it's coming. We just don't know whether it's going to come next year or in 20 years time. I mean, I have no idea. And the problem is, is that you might go, well, I suppose war obviously is, is, is bad for everybody concerned but it has a direct knock-on economic effect an investing effect because the region is built upon very strong collective bonds of trust and trade you know we underestimate the degree to which thailand cambodia vietnam are linked to china and they're linked to japan and when you have geopolitical conflict that frays those elements of trust which successful economies are built on so the big bear case is that and the second big bear case i suppose more just more prosaically is corporate governance which is can you really trust anything anybody says there so weighing up those risks against the risk of not having the exposure <laughs> yes. to growth in the region, how could investors think about gaining exposure? Well, I think the first thing to say is I think by and large buying direct equities is a very dangerous strategy. So a classic right. example that you might have been tempted to buy more well-known names like Samsung. Well, I think after Samsung's recent issues with Note, the, the Note phone, you might realise that's a bad idea. Yeah, it's a great company, brilliant technology. Look what happened to its share price when the Note blew up. So, and that's a classic example of a stock that everybody's heard of, yeah? And there's a load of stocks you haven't heard of, which people might be tempted. And I just think individual stock picking mugs game. Too risky. So you move down to funds. Then you face an issue about whether or not you go passive or active. 
get very straightforward. And I think that I would suggest that by and large, I would steer away from passive exchange traded funds, for instance, in this region, because there's so much complexity to the individual nations, to how each of the individual nations operate, that I think it's a bit of a mug's game. You can play the momentum game. So, for instance, a lot of money's been made over the last few years just buying an ETF for, I don't know, Indonesian stocks, for instance. Mm-hmm. They've just done very, very well. But then they don't do very, very well for a couple of years, and then you probably lose all your gains. So I think an actively managed fund is a better idea. And then you have to face a decision that actively managed is, by and large, do you go for managers who have a more growth-orientated mandate? They want to find tomorrow's Baidu's and Tencent's, it's already yeah. successful companies, or do you want to go for a more value-orientated approach by cheaper stocks with good qualities, but their share price is a bit low? Or do you want to have a more total return basis? And what we mean by that is, is that fund manager can both go bullish, long and short, bearish. And there's a lot less of those total return guys out there. So you have to sort of work out what kind of fund you want. And then if all that wasn't bad enough, you still got to work out whether or not which geographies you want. And I would strongly argue that you should include Japan in any fund you pick. Because I think some of the most interesting opportunities, particularly in the value bucket, are in Japan. Okay. Okay? And I also think you should try and have a fund manager who's willing to go outside just of China to places like Vietnam, where, again, there's lots of value opportunities out there. So a fund manager who looks at the whole region and is willing to be quite adventurous, if you don't mind using the expression. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Absolutely. So it would be quite adventurous and willing just to go. I think one geography fund managers is probably a bad idea. So going back to the earlier point, Fidelity had a very, very big and not necessarily successful Chinese small cap fund. I think focusing just on China is a mugs game, personally. I think you need to be regionally specific and I think you need to understand what your fund manager is investing in. Well, thanks very much. That was our adventurous investor, David Stevenson. You can read his full column now. Asia isn't a one way bet, but it's the region for investors to watch on ft.com slash money. Next April brings the launch of the Lifetime ISA, former Chancellor George Osborne's sop to the millennial generation who find themselves priced out of the housing market and struggling to save for a pension. The scheme intends to encourage them to save for the long term, with a government top-up worth up to £1,000 a year for those who can save £4,000, but the funds can only be used to buy a property or save towards retirement, otherwise hefty exit fees apply. Now, many have criticised the structure of the Lifetime ISA, but this week Richard Graham MP, a member of the Commons Work and Pensions Committee and also chairman of the all-party parliamentary pensions group, has joined the growing chorus of detractors, writing a column in FT Money calling for April's launch to be shelved. And he joins me now in the FT studio. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. So firstly, tell us why you're worried that the Lifetime ISA will deter other forms of pension savings in the young. I think my concern is that introducing the Lifetime ISA, especially now, risks undermining good progress on the workplace pension known as auto-enrolment, which the government started and is pursuing effectively, 7 million people in so far, and another 4 million from the smallest employers due to come in over the next 18 months or so. And I think because the LISA risks being seen as a competitive product it may detract from the success of the workplace pension, either now or in the future, as contribution amounts in the workplace pension increase. And, I mean, do you think the policy objectives of the lifetime ISA and also enrolment run counter to each other? I mean, surely they're both policies which are encouraging young people to start saving for the future and therefore a good thing. 
Absolutely. And the, the principle of encouraging people to save, especially to buy a home, is a very good one. That's why Help to Buy was introduced, and I think broadly that has encouraged some people onto the housing ladder. And this, in a sense, is a successor to Help to Buy, but because it also has the option of carrying on saving for retirement, that does make it a, a straightforward competitor. Now, in America, Australia, New Zealand and Singapore, countries broadly like ours with Anglo-Saxon traditions of savings, it is possible to do both, i.e. to save for a home and for future retirement mm -hmm. through the same vehicle. And I'm not convinced that it is the best thing to create separate vehicles by separate departments which are effectively in competition and which have slightly different rules, thereby, if you like, adding to the complications of, all, of an already crowded savings product line rather than simplifying them and looking at, say, whether additional flexibility needs to be built into the workplace pension. Well, let's stay on that topic of simplicity. Now, many people, including the, the chief economist of the Bank of England, say that they don't understand pensions. And in my experience as the money editor, it's younger people who feel the most in the dark. But they understand ISAs. I mean, is that one important point in the lifetime ISAs favour? It's certainly a point that's much emphasised by people like Michael Johnson writing for the Centre of Policy Studies, that you know the ISA is the brand that people understand and all the rest of it. But... Pensions are simply a form of saving, and mm. the most important thing about them, at a time when we're all living much longer than our parents have done, is that it gives you something to draw on much later in life. If you can take out everything you've saved in a LISA, age 60, if you're a man, you're going to be living on average for another 28 years after that, and even longer for a woman. So... I'm not convinced that the concept of saving by paying out of taxed income at the beginning, which a lot of people who are worse off will find very difficult to do, certainly mm. up to the maximum allowed of 4000 a year, is really the best way forward. And really the compelling issue in all of this is to try and work out who is going to benefit. The, the cost of the LISA, the Treasury estimate, is going to be about $850 million over the next four years. And my concern is that the majority of assets that will go into it, and it will be very popular, make no mistake, will come from people who've already got ISAs. People like ISAs, me. In people the like you yeah. and I. Or people who've got significant amounts of other savings who can afford to set them up for their children or for their grandchildren. That's fine, but it's not really helping the people at the lowest income level who are those who are going to benefit from the workplace pension and therefore at the margin I would love to see a real assessment of where the, the funds are going to come from and we should be putting more taxpayer money into helping those who are least likely to have savings rather than giving additional incentives to those who've already saved. Well what will happen next? We had the first reading of the pensions bill this week. It looks like despite your arguments that the lifetime ISA is going to go ahead in April. Yes, so I called for a pause. I thought what we needed to do was to set up a savings commission, give them a very clear steer with some nice simple questions, recommendations on how best to simplify the whole savings and pensions infrastructure and how best to help people save for their houses and then for retirement, for example. Those, I think, are the key questions. And to pause the LISA. Now, the government, I think, would understandably argue that since the second reading went through unopposed, there wasn't even a vote on it, that there's no reason to do that now. We should push forward. 
But the FCA consultation on the details of this for the industry who's going to be distributing it actually only ends at the end of February, about six weeks before the license is supposed to be introduced. That's a very short, short timetable mm. yeah, for anyone to take any uh, notice of the responses to the consultation. And given that the next year or 18 months is the most crucial time for the success of the workplace pension, I think there's still an opportunity for the government, if they wish, to go ahead and pass the bill but not actually implement LISA until, for example, April 2018 rather than 2017, by which time the workplace pension will have had more time, it will have been rolled out more widely, and we can then have a discussion about what the differences are between these two products so that at least people are much better informed. Well, thanks very much there to Richard Graham, MP. You can read his column, The Lifetime ISA is for the few, not the many, now on ft.com slash money. And we'd love to hear your views on this topic, whether you're under 40 or over, plus the effects of inflation and money matters more generally. You can email us your thoughts. Money at ft.com is our email address or tweet us at ftmoney. And you can comment on all of our articles online at ft.com slash money. The Money Show will be back next Thursday at the usual time. Hopefully my voice will also be back. Until then, goodbye. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's Currencies Correspondent. Each week I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.